Uh, we're going to finish up our series today on the fruit of the Spirit. This uh, will be, the, I think, the ninth message in, uh, in the series, and then we'll be off to other things, I guess, next week. Uh, but today we get to talk about the lovely topic of self-control. And uh, yeah, I guess Cassie's Bible study is a similar thing. But I'm not sure if women have issues uh, controlling their husbands. I think husbands have much more issues controlling, at least throughout history, controlling women. I think it's the other way around. I think that curse backfired or something. I'm not sure. <laughs> All right, let's read our passage. Uh, Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And so we finally get to hit the last one, self-control. And uh, just a quick definition before we jump in. Uh, self-control is the ability to control our desires, emotions, and reactions. Or another definition could be is when we choose to do what brings long-term benefits rather than immediate gratification. Of course, there's always a place in, in healthy ways for immediate gratification, that can be a healthy thing when it's done in a loving way and in, 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 in certain ways. But, but sometimes we need self-control to hold off that immediate gratification for, for the sake of love or the betterment or betterment of the future or whatever it might be, long-term benefits. Proverbs 25 says, Like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. And when this was written, of course, uh, cities were surrounded by walls, and those walls were to protect the cities. The walls were extremely important to, to the city. And, uh, and if a city didn't have walls, it was exposed to all kinds of turmoil and danger. And it's the same with, with our lives. When, when we lack self-control, it can expose us to things that can be, can be harmful. And, uh, you know, sometimes we do lack self-control, and, you know... I can tell you a million stories of when I've lacked self-control, but, you know, definitely one that comes to mind was back, I think it was about 96. Um, you know, back then, I used to love these cars. They're, they're kind of ugly now, but uh, this was a Dodge Neon back in, in the 90s, and, you know, we had just graduated, and, you know, I just liked these cars, because they were kind of, I think they came out in 94 or something like that, and the sport model with the little wing, and I just kind of liked these cars, even though I'm like, pretty much always a Volkswagen guy, uh, but... But I was just kind of like this thing. And after high school, you know, Marie and I, we, uh, we actually built a house in Nelson back when you could actually do that, like on a normal job. Not anymore. Uh, but we actually did that. And so we were, had a lot of debt. And it was actually kind of hard even to make it month by month, paying off all our stuff. But uh, I, I heard, because I was a, still am a licensed mechanic, but I was working at a shop at those days. And I heard one of the dealerships had... Someone traded in a Dodge Neon, and it was only like a year old. And I was like, I totally want to go drive this thing. And so, you know, I said, Marie, hey, I'm going to go check out this car, and I'm just taking a drive. And she's like, you know, we can't afford this. I'm like, totally, I can't afford this car. I mean, there's no way you can afford it. And so I went, tried out this car. It was pretty rad, you know. This is kind of peppy for a little car. And, you know, I got back. I was like, hmm, maybe, maybe I could afford this somehow. And, you know, I got talking to the salesman, trying to work out a deal. And, you know, Brady the whole time was like, we can't do this. This is a really bad idea. And I was like, you know, I, I really should not do this, but I want it. <laughs> and sad to say, we walked away that day with a, with a nice little Dodge Neon. Which is really weird, because the weirdest thing, I don't know what happened in that car before, but whenever you sat in the passenger seat, it just wafted like the smell of farts. I don't know if something <laughs> died on that seat or what, but uh, 
<laughs> but it was really bad for us financially because after that it was just like serious issues trying to, to make it. Uh, and then I went into ministry and I had to sell that and my house and everything else. Uh, but anyways, it can be defined self-control is, is when the should wins out over the want. Because, you know, I shouldn't have bought that car, but I wanted it. And we all know that thing. You know, I, you know, I really shouldn't have three pieces of chocolate cake, but I want three pieces of chocolate cake. And, you know, I really shouldn't, you know, burst out in rage at my neighbor because, you know, they have too many dandelions in their yard or whatever. Uh, that was always us. And, um, but, you know, it's when the should, uh, it was when the, when the should loses over the want is when we lack self, self-control. You know, there are a lot of stories in the Bible of folks who were either good at self-control or lacked self-control. And, you know, David, King David, is one of those guys who's, man, his life was just so extreme in terms of good and evil. Uh, he did so many horrible things, and yet he did so many awesome things. And, and so he's a good example of, of someone who shined in self-control at times, but also was really horrible at self-control. And so we'll start with the bad, the bad news. And this is the famous story, of course, of King David and, and Bathsheba, a story a lot of people know. When his army was off fighting uh, war, he was usually with, with his army fighting wars, but this time he decided to stay home. And he was chilling out on his palace deck and, and he looks over his city and he sees a woman by the name of Bathsheba, which is funny enough, having a bath. And, and, and in his heart, he's like, I want her. And most likely he had that little check in the spirit that we get, you know, I probably shouldn't do this, but I want her. And so, you know, him being the king and being in a patriarchal society, you know, you know, men could, especially a king could do anything and women just had to obey. And so the woman is brought to the palace and, and he has sex with her and, and all good and fine. He thinks this is just like a, you know, a little one thing that the king can do. But later he finds out that Bathsheba got pregnant. And, uh, and her husband was one of the, kind of the, the big guys in his, in his army. And so he's like, you know, how in the world can I get to go over this? And probably he had this check in the spirit. I should just confess <laughs> to what I did, but I don't want to do that because that's lame. Uh, I want to cover this up. And so he tries to cover it up. And so he invites Uriah, the, the husband, home, hoping that he is going to sleep with the wife and then think it's his baby. And, and, uh, but he's so faithful to King David and to his men. He's like, I'm not going to sleep with my wife. Uh, my men are out there fighting. And I'm gonna... So he, he stands guard at the palace and he sleeps on the palace step, on King David's steps. And, you know, David tries other things, tries to get him drunk and all these other things and doesn't work. And eventually... Uh, he just really loses self-control where, where, you know, the should totally loses out over the power of the want. And he's like, I got to cover this up. And so he has a scheme in which he is killed. And then he gets to take Bathsheba as, as his wife. That's lacking self-control in many respects. Uh, King David in this story. But there's other stories where earlier in his life, he had this immense self-control and one of those stories is when he was trying to be killed. Uh, king Saul, who was the king of the day, uh, was a very jealous king. And he was jealous that King David was kind of the hero of the, of the nation. He was jealous that he knew King David was going to be the king, but he's like, I'm the king. And so he has this army of men that is constantly trying to find David to kill him, to get rid of him so he can be king longer. And one day he actually has to go take a leak and he goes into this cave. This is in the Bible. It's a story. It's a Bible story. 
There's all kinds of crazy stories in the Bible. And he, and he has to take a leak, and so he goes in this cave to take a leak, but David and his men are hiding out in there. And this, this is how the story goes. Saul chose 3,000 elite troops from all Israel and went to search for David and his men near the rocks of the wild goats. Sounds like a place in the Lord of the Rings or something. <laughs> you know, at the place where the road passes some sheepfold, Saul went into a cave to relieve himself. But as it happened, David and his men were hiding further back in that very cave. Now is your opportunity, David's men whispered to him. Today the Lord is telling you, I will certainly put your enemy into your power to do as you wish. And so, I mean, Saul's been trying to kill David for, uh, like, for a long time. And here's his opportunity. His men says, the Lord is telling you. This is like a word of prophecy. The Lord is telling you this is your opportunity. You can take out the king and finally you get to be king. Now, this is an important note. Just because someone gives you a prophecy... Just because someone says the Lord is saying to you does not mean you have to follow what they say. <laughs> you have to discern for yourself, is this what God is saying to me? Because who knows, maybe they're just saying that out of their, their own preference or their own desires. I mean, we don't always get words from the Lord right. Uh, sometimes they're wrong. And in this case, uh, even in the Old Testament days, David actually rejects this word, this prophecy. So David crept forward and he cuts off a piece of the hem of Saul's robe but then David's conscience began bothering him because he had cut Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this to my Lord the king. I shouldn't attack the Lord's anointed one for the Lord himself has chosen him. So David restrained his men and did not let them kill Saul. I mean, that, that was a lot of self-control considering those kind of the warrior you know, society that they were in for him not to take out the, this king. He, he exercised his self-control even in the midst of a prophecy. I was going the other direction. And it can take a lot of self-control in situations when maybe other people are giving you advice that you don't feel the Lord is telling you. Or it can take self-control to go in a different direction than the crowd. And, and David here does this and he becomes an example, in this case, of good self-control. Uh, Proverbs 16 says, Better a patient person than a warrior one with self-control than one who takes a city. And, you know, that was far more impressive back then because back then, you know, in that warrior culture, you know, one who could take a city or one who was a powerful warrior was the most amazing thing ever. Uh, you know, this might be saying today, you know, better, you know, a patient person than, you know, the, the, the best rock star out there or the, you know, the YouTube super guy or whatever. Uh, I mean, uh, Self-control has so many benefits. And this is why it's one of the fruit of the spirits. Uh, it's fruit of the spirit. Um, you may have heard of the marshmallow test. It's a famous test they do in psychology all the time, way back to the 60s. And this is where they, they take little kids and they, and they pop a marshmallow in front of them and they say, you know, you can eat this marshmallow right now or you can wait. Just a little while, i got to do, do a little errand and then come back. But if you hold off and not eating that marshmallow, you can have two marshmallows. And so they put the marshmallow in front of the kid. And then, you know, then they, they head off for 10 or 15 minutes. And then they come back to see if the kid has eaten the marshmallow. And, you know, half the time the kid eats the marshmallow because 10 or 15 minutes for a kid is like, it's like years, right? And, and so you just watch these videos and they play with it for a little while. And then they lick it. And then, you know, finally they pop it in their mouth. But... 
You know, they've done these studies um, like thousands and thousands of times. They've done the marshmallow test. But uh, they started so long ago, like in the 60s, that they've been able to keep track of these kids as they have gotten older. And what they have found is that the kids who were able to have self-control and wait the 10 or 15 minutes uh, did far better in life, generally speaking, health-wise and financially and, you know, education and, and, and so many areas because of self-control. Self-control is beneficial. And, uh, and um, Scott Young, he says, in general, people with better self-control eat more healthy, do more exercise, sleep better, drink less alcohol, smoke fewer cigarettes, achieve higher grades at university, have more peaceful relationships, are more financially secure, and enjoy stronger physical and mental health. And this was a study, and every one of those had studies linked to it. I mean, self-control has a lot of benefits. Now, it's important to note that not everybody has equal ability when it comes to self-control. Uh, some people naturally are just born with more self-control. Some people's personalities are designed that self-control is just easier than other personalities. And if you have certain things, like I have a little bit of ADHD and that kind of thing. That's why I talk so fast and can never take a break. Um, <laughs> it's just harder. Self-control can be harder for certain personality types. But either way, it is beneficial wherever you're at in when it comes to self-control. You just put me on coffee and then I'm in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's look at Jesus and self-control. Sometimes it's helpful to have an example that perhaps is better than King David. And Jesus is that, that guy. Jesus is just incredible at self-control. And so let's look at some examples. And one example, of course, is when he's hanging with the Pharisees. You know, the Pharisees were, were so nasty towards Jesus. And we've probably all had people in our life who have been nasty towards us. You know, a coworker, a neighbor, you know, a family member who just always seems to be nasty. And it can be really, really hard to maintain self-control when someone's being horrible towards us. And we see the Pharisees were always trying to plot to, you know, trap Jesus. And of course, they, 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 they uh, you know, planned it so he would be killed. And they were always trying to just get him and to catch him and to turn the crowds against him. And yet Jesus has this incredible self-control when it comes to the Pharisees. Uh, just as Proverbs says, a fool gives full vent to his, uh, to his, a fool gives full vent to his, <laughs> to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. That, I totally typed that wrong, because it's supposed to be a fool gives full vent to his anger. That's <laughs> not to his spirit. <laughs> just forget that. Full vent to his anger. Uh, but this is, this is Jesus. You never see, giving like, raging at the Pharisees and, you know, could have like, you know, punched them out. I mean, he could have played, you know, put saran wrap over their toilets or something. <laughs> but, but he doesn't. Uh, but he has these boundaries and at times he, he is very firm with them. In Matthew 23, he has very firm words for the Pharisees. Like, he lets his anger out in a self-controlled way because anger in itself is, is, is not, it's not a bad emotion. It's how it's released that becomes bad. Uh, God puts anger in us for, for certain reasons, and it can be very healthy in, when we see injustice or we're being hurt or others are being hurt, but to have self-control over th those things is powerful, and we see Jesus, Jesus having that. Another example is Luke 9. It says, the, the, the people of the village did not welcome Jesus because he was on his way to Jerusalem. When James and John saw this, they said to Jesus, 
Lord, should we call down fire from heaven to burn them up? That's an example of no self-control. You know, they didn't welcome us. Let's call fire down from heaven and just, you know, burn up all those nasty people. Uh, that's no self. That's letting your rage, fully venting your rage. And, and yet Jesus <laughs> turned to them and rebuked them. That's not, uh, God is for life, not for taking life. And he just has the self-control in these tense situations. And probably the most crazy example of self-control that I've ever seen or heard or read is of Jesus on the cross. Because we all know that when we are, you know, kind of overwhelmed, stressed out, or in pain, that self-control can be immensely hard to exercise. I mean, if you've had like nasty tooth pain for days on end, and then someone just bugs you, it's just like, ah, you know, whatever it might be. When you're hurting, self-control is, is hard. And yet we see Jesus in incredible pain, but not only incredible pain, but, you know, going through incredible mockery and, and, uh, and hatred towards him, yet he maintains self-control. In Mark 15, it says, they dressed him in a purple robe and they wove thorn branches into a crown and put it on his head. Then they saluted him and taunted him, hail, king of the Jews. And they struck him on the head with a reed stick, spit on him, and dropped to their knees in mock worship. I mean, right there, that would be enough for me to like, <laughs> whatever it might be. Like, what are you doing? Uh, when, when they were finally tired of mocking him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him again. Then they led him away to be crucified. The people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. Ha, look at you now, they yelled at him. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well then, save yourself and come down from the cross. The leading priests and the teachers of religious law also mocked Jesus. He saved others. They scoffed, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down from the cross so we can see it and believe in him. Even the men who were crucified with Jesus ridiculed him. And they're, they're teasing and they're mocking him. And yet Jesus could do all these things. I mean, he could have come down from the cross. I mean, he said, at any moment, I could call thousands of angels to come and rescue me. They're, they're saying all these things that, that are, that are just, just mocking him. And, uh, and yet Jesus on the cross returns and says, you know, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Like, what incredible self-control. I mean, he couldn't even imagine that. Undergoing pain and that, and yet he's maintaining this self-control, which he just becomes a beautiful example of, of loving others in this self-controlled way. And, uh, and as followers of Jesus, we want to we, we model that. And the good news is, is that the same Jesus, with the same ability to have self-control, is, is not gone far away somewhere. He's actually in us. The Christ is, is in us. And this is what it says in 2 Corinthians. Do you not realize that Jesus Christ is in you? He, he is in us. The same spirit, the same power, the same goodness, the same love, and the same self-control where he was on that cross looking out over uh, his enemies and saying, I love these people. Father, would you forgive them? That, that Jesus is in us. And just like all the other fruits of the Spirit, we don't have to go searching for self-control or for peace or for patience. It is already in us, but it's a matter of us partnering with what God is doing to help that be released in our lives. Second Timothy 1 puts it this way. God has not given us the spirit of fear, 
but of power and of love and of self-control. He's not giving you the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. And that spirit, of course, is in us. It is so tangled up in us that we can't even separate ourselves from the spirit. Self-control is already there. And, and even psychologically speaking, this is helpful to know because, you know, they've done tests where, you know, people who have more self-control, that one of the aspects that they have is that they actually believe they can exercise self-control or can self-regulate. And folks who don't believe they can self-regulate or can't have self-control tend not to, to, to do it as well. So even just this belief that I have self-control in me. God has not given me a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. Self-control is already in me, and I just want to partner with what God is doing in me when it comes to self-control. And so we're to partner with God, and, and this is what 2 Peter 1 says. Peter writes, in view of all this, make every effort to respond to God's promises. And one of these promises is this idea of the fruit of the Spirit in us. So supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence and moral excellence with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with patient endurance. And of course, patient endurance is needed because we all know how hard self-control is in those areas where we are weak. I mean, sometimes it's a step forward and 10 back and then three forward and five up and down and it can be, it can be a journey that you don't want to shame yourself for not having self-control. That's not helpful. God does not shame you. There is no condemnation. You are walking in forgiveness. But to choose, I, I want to grow in self-control. God, I want to partner with you, you in that. Now, I talk just briefly about self-control and blame, and then we're going to go on just to one thing we can do. Um, you know, when we lack self-control, it sometimes will cause us shame. It can cause us to feel bad, like, oh, I failed again, and why did I do that again? And, you know, you know why did I buy that thing? Why did I eat that ten tenth piece of cake or whatever, whatever it might be? I mean, there's a million things where we lack self-control. It can cause us to feel shame, and because we want to feel shame, we want to get rid of that shame instead of just receiving the, the truth of Jesus that I'm not under shame. That I might be convicted or I might not want to do that again, but, but there is no shame in God. But because we feel shame, we often turn that into blame to get it off our chest. You know, the reason I got so angry was because of you. This is classic abuser. You know, the reason I abused you and hurt you and are angry with you is because you're just, you're just a nasty wife or if you were a better son or a better daughter, that I wouldn't be angry. That, that, that is blame and not taking ownership of one's lack of, of ability to self-regulate and, self, and to have self-control. And it's a dangerous trap uh, that we have to be able to own our stuff. And when we're afraid to own our stuff and we feel fear, again, we just want to blame. And so sometimes we can blame others for, for our personality issues. But, but Jesus says, it's not that person's fault. Sure, that person can make it more difficult for you, but you need to own your own stuff. And this is one of the things that Bible constantly says, that we need to own our own stuff and partner with God to work through it. Jesus said, the words you speak come from your heart. And then say the words you speak are because that person is being nasty towards you. And so you can blame them. No, nope. the words you speak come from your heart. 
to own your own things and to not blame others. And this can happen with, with of course, anger. And you know, I just want to point out this, this often, especially in old school Christianity, happened a lot with what was known as purity culture, which was kind of big back, you know, 10 or 15 years ago where, you know, uh, all men's sexual problems were women's fault, basically was purity culture. Uh, but Jesus says in Matthew 5, anyone who even looks at a woman, and by the way, this Greek word is actually a married woman in the Greek, with lust, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. Jesus says, own your own stuff. He's not talking to, you know, actually gouge out your eyes, but he's saying, own your own stuff. Have self-control. It does not say here that you should look at that woman and tell her to dress better. Because that was purity culture. Constantly blaming women for the thoughts that men had. And it's just, that's not, that's not a biblical thing. <laughs> it's, it's own your own stuff. It's coming from your own heart. In fact, a healthy man and a healthy woman who were really walking in the spirit and in love and consent and goodness should be able to stand naked in front of each other and, and to respect each other and honor each other. I mean, this idea that, well, what you're wearing is causing me to, to lose self-control and then I'm going to blame you. It's Jesus, get on your own stuff. Learn to self-regulate. Walk in the Spirit. Now, of course, we know all this stuff is easier said than done. But again, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Now, uh, if you start with self-control, I mean, a lot of avenues can go... Um, you know, therapy can be very helpful if you're really struggling in an area, uh, talking to people. But uh, one thing on the spiritual end that we can do is to just to really tap into the presence of God when we are struggling with self-control. You know, as we talked about last week, in Philippians 4, it says, Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. And we, we talked that the word gentleness is power under control. And it's the same with self-control because self-control is, again, our power under control. The power we have to hurt, the power we have to disrespect, the power we have to do things towards others that is not full of consent. I mean, that, to have this gentleness and to have the self-control is so important. And it is helpful, at least for me, to, I, I feel stronger in self-control when I'm just recognizing the presence of God. That God is right here. And He has not given me a spirit of fear but a spirit of power and of love and of self-control. And it can be hard to get into that sometimes when, when you're freaking out or, or there's, there's something that is over, really overwhelming us. And this is where, and I've taught on this before, and we'll just finish with this, uh, the STAR tool can be handy. The STAR tool. And this is just a, a process you can use when you feel like you're about to lose self-control. And of course, this is like when our amygdala begins overriding. We get into the, you know, the flight, freeze, flop, and drop thing. And, and, and we just want to rage back or lose self-control to just get ourselves back into our Holy Spirit self so we can listen to what God is saying in that moment. And so if you feel someone's pushing you, if you feel like you're about to lose control, uh, there's a little acronym, a ac acronym. And the first one is the S stands for stop. <laughs> Just stop, and you could just even do this for a few seconds. Just stop before you blurt out, rage out, you know, grab that thing, do that thing that you're going to regret. Just stop 
and remind yourself you don't have to immediately fix this. You don't have to immediately respond. You don't have to blame. You don't have to rage. You can just, just stop for a second. So the first thing is to stop. And anyone at T is to take a deep breath and remind yourself of the presence of God. And this, of course, scientifically has been showing that when you just stop and when you just take a deep breath, it brings your thinking brain back online and your thinking brain is connected to your heart, which is connected to the work of the Holy Spirit. I mean, when you're in amygdala override and you just want to, you know, fight fleas for upper drop, I mean, it's hard to listen to the Holy Spirit at that moment. So you just need to stop, take a, br- a breath and just begin to recognize the presence of God in that moment. As Psalm 46 says, be still and know that I am God. And he isn't God in that tempting situation. He's right there when you're about to lose control or to buy that neon when you shouldn't. You know, God is he's right there, but you need to stop and turn your direction to his presence. And uh, then you can just appreciate is the A and connect with Jesus. And you know, to lean into this, this idea of Isaiah 26 that you will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you, all whose thoughts are fixed on you. So you just, you just fix your thoughts after your breath on the presence of God. You know, somebody can say, he's right here with me. He's in me. He can quote verses. He's not giving me a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and love and self-control and just connect with him in the moment. And then the, lastly, the R is to respond. In faith and love, to do the right thing, to obey the direction you receive from God. As Jesus said, I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by Himself. He does only what He sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son also does. And this is what we want to connect into. And this takes us to, to cool our crazy brain down and to connect with the work of this Holy Spirit. And God, just, God, what are you doing in this moment? And you can do this like in 10 seconds. Just to stop, take a deep breath, recognize the presence of God. And God, what are you doing in this moment? How do you want me to respond in this moment? And you might just say, take a chill pill, head outside. <laughs> and you might just say, you don't need to fix this right now. This is not your battle. You know, uh, you know whatever he might say to you. And then you try to respond in faith. And this is where it takes that courage and that effort and to, you know, maybe to talk to someone and get around someone who can help you in that moment. But stop, take a deep breath, appreciate and connect with Jesus and respond to God and ask him what he is doing in this situation. Let's take a moment to uh, just ask God a few, few questions here just as a reflection. So let's just start by just taking a deep breath. And just let's begin to recognize the presence of God in you and around you. And let's just ask God this question together. God, what area of my life do I need more self-control? God, what area of my life do I need more self-control? And it'd probably just be a little whisper that happens in your spirit, a word or a phrase, picture. Now God has not left us alone This is the fruit of the Spirit. He's got a role to play. And so let's just ask God, God, what is your role to play in moving me forward? God, what is your role to play in my life when it comes to this?
and just receive that into your spirit. And God, we ask, what, what is my role in this, God? What is my role to play in this? Yeah, I thank you that you hold our hand. That you're walking with us as we go up and down, God, in, in life. God, we sort of pray a blessing of the fruit of the Spirit over, over all of us today, especially today, God, in the area of self-control. God, we want to love people deeply, and, uh, and God, just help us to do that through our ability to, to self-regulate when we're, uh, God, to amount to, to head down a path that, that is not of you. So we pray that you would bless this in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.